Good afternoon. Thank you for joining our May 13th CMS COVID-19 weekly call with nursing homes. We appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedules to join us today. We're also very happy to be with you during a week where we take the time to celebrate the hard work of nursing home care teams as we care for some of the nation's most vulnerable patients. This is Alina Chekai working on stakeholder engagement on COVID-19 in the Office of CMS Administrator Seema Verma. Today we are joined by CMS and CDC leaders as well as providers in the field who have offered to share their best practices with you all. I'd first like to turn it over to Administrator Seema Verma for an update on the agency's latest guidance in response to COVID-19. Administrator Verma, over to you. Thank you very much, and thank you all for joining us today. I appreciate you taking time out of your uh, busy schedules. You know, um, this week is Skilled Nursing Week, and I just wanted to start out by expressing my sincere appreciation and gratitude to each and every one of you uh, for your unwavering dedication and commitment to keeping residents safe. These are truly unprecedented times, and you all have done an amazing job. This has been an incredibly difficult time for you and your staff. Um, it's been difficult to keep people safe. The number of deaths has been hard on your staff. Um, and yet, you know, people are there day in and day out, not only just doing the routine work that you um, have done in the past, but I think it's also the, the staff has always been a source of care and comfort, but even more so um, serving as almost family members and, you know, appreciate all the work, the stories that we hear about nursing home staff on the front lines, um, you know, communicating with families, giving them calls, um, setting up uh, Skype meetings so that patients can talk to their families. That's, that's really incredible work, and it shows how much you really care for your patients. Um, I also wanted to just take a special moment to thank uh, Mark Parkinson, who's just been a great partner. He uh, has been working with us on the administrative level, been communicating a lot of the concerns and challenges that you all have been going through from testing to supplies. Um, he's just been available anytime I've called him. And I wanted to, to take this time to actually tell a story about Mark because, um, you know, we've all been working through this, and I think it was a Saturday morning, and I just called him and I said, Mark, you know, tell me what's going on. Tell me what I can do to help. And he was talking about testing challenges. He was talking about PPE challenges. And throughout that weekend, I must have called him three or four times. He always took my call. He was very prepared, very organized. He gave me a list that weekend of all of the nursing homes. He had it organized with all their all the pertinent information, the size of the nursing home, the number of staff, and it actually had a PPE calculator in that, and I was able to take his spreadsheet and give that to FEMA. And so um, as many of you hopefully are receiving some of the packages that FEMA has put together to augment your supplies, um, that's that's kind of how it happened. Um, it was a very uh, simple, uh, you know, transfer of information or just talking to FEMA about it, but a lot of it had to do with the leadership of the association, and because Mark was so organized and he had all that information at his fingertips, we could just hand it to FEMA, and they were um, really happy to be able to uh, deliver the packages. We're getting updates and hearing that they're delivering that all across the country, and so um, we hope that that is a, just a symbol of our appreciation for all of the hard work that, that you all have done. And I think that story with Mark really speaks to the partnership that, that we've had um, over this enormously difficult time and uh, challenging situation. We uh, also, ha as part of the FEMA effort, we got to deliver the packages, and I met a nursing home owner in Virginia, and, uh, you know, he was telling me about the fact that they had had COVID in some of their facilities, they had learned a lot, um, they would figured out how to control the spread of the virus in the nursing home. And so, you know, while it had been a difficult time, it was a great example of nursing homes that are doing incredible work across the country. And uh, we felt really grateful to be there and to listen to their stories, and I'm, and I'm glad that um, we were able to talk about some of the great work that nursing homes are doing. So from our standpoint, we, we hope that uh, the work that we've been doing with the nursing homes represents a partnership. Um, these are challenging times. We're all learning new things about the virus. We hope that all of the guidance and uh, regulations and 
information that we've been giving is really intended to support your efforts. I can tell you that the CMS uh, nursing home team has been working round the clock um, pretty much every weekend since all of this started. They meet daily with the CDC team, and they've been really uh, working hard to make sure that everything's updated and based on the latest science and information. Um, we appreciate your uh, great cooperation with the surveys. I think we really intended those to be uh, problem-solving, an opportunity to identify issues to help you serve your patients better, um, and just to identify issues and work in collaboration to ensure that patients are safe. And so we really appreciate uh, the strong support and your cooperation with, with all of those uh, surveys that have been going on. And the team has used a lot of the information that they've received from that um, to inform other types of guidance. So uh, we want to continue that partnership with you. We're very excited about the President's Commission on the Coronavirus uh, Patient, uh, sorry, Quality and Safety for Nursing Home Patients. We really hope that that's going to be an opportunity for all of us to just step back from what's been going on in the day-to-day -day and try to identify those best practices so that we can ensure that not only patients are safe, but they're getting the best quality of life. And uh, this is going to be an ongoing battle. We know coronavirus, you know, unfortunately isn't going anywhere for a while. And while we are seeing uh, reductions in cases all across the country, um, you know, it's something that we're going to have to continue to be vigilant on. And so we're hoping that the, the task force or the, I'm sorry, the, the commission um, and some of those individuals can kind of give us some all some outside perspective, and we're excited to ensure that we have nursing home representation on the commission. But I think it it hopefully marks a you know a new way of us trying to figure out what's the best way to increase quality, uh, patient quality of life, and ensure that all patients are safe. So. We're excited to begin that process. I think this week we'll be announcing uh, the process for nominations as well. And then the other thing I wanted to mention that the team has worked on is that we put out a toolkit this week. And the toolkit really just summarized all of the efforts across states and all the different things that they're doing to support nursing homes. Um, some of them, as you know, some of the uh, governors have asked their National Guards to help nursing homes with cleaning and disinfection. This week we called for support for states to help nursing homes get their nursing home residents tested um, and to support your efforts to identify patients that may have COVID virus. We've also increased reimbursement in Medicare for testing. And um, something that we've never done before is we allow labs um, to go to patients that are homebound, which would include our nursing home residents, and to conduct that testing. And so um, that's something that we hope will support your efforts to identify patients um, quickly and be able to isolate them. So again, um, I want to make sure you have time to talk about um, all of the best practices and uh, great work that you're doing. But again, I just wanted to say a sincere thank you. Really appreciate all the hard work you're doing, and we look forward to continuing to work with you. Thank you very much. And with that, I'll, I'll hand it over to Jean Wright. Thank you. Thank you, Administrator, and uh, we really appreciate all that you are, are doing as well. And welcome, everyone, to our weekly call. I would like to add my congratulations and thanks for National Skilled uh, Nursing Care Week. It uh, is certainly an observance that we, we've been uh, uh, recognizing for the entire week, and uh, so stay tuned throughout the rest of this week as we continue to uh, do the recognition and provide uh, information. So the administrator outlined uh, a number of things that we had in the works and things that we've rolled out. And as I usually do on this call, I like to let you know about uh, some of the flexibilities that uh, we are also rolling out because most of those come from your requests, you know, your requests for waivers or things, questions you've had from this call. And uh, so I'm going to name a couple of those, but I'm not going to spend too much time because we do have a really a full agenda. Uh, but one of the things, um, just to mention, we did do some changes to the life safety code requirements for 
uh, skilled nursing facilities and nursing facilities, uh, some of the things that uh, were we needed to weigh related to the prescriptiveness of uh, alcohol-based hand rubs and where they're placed. Uh, and the dispensers, we recognize in this time it's more important that you be able to get to those alcohol-based hand rubs when you need them versus where they're actually posted. Um, I mean, there is a reason whenever we have these kinds of things. Uh, they are. Uh, it's ethyl alcohol. It's flammable. And so there's a reason for the for the regs that are in place. But we are waiving uh, most of those with the exception there's still a restriction on the storage uh, for the large containers because it is flammable. So uh, just check that waiver uh, to see what what uh, involved there. As well as the quarterly fire drills, uh, we have uh, waived that. Uh, it's still important to include that in your orientation, uh, but we recognize now is not the time to be moving mass numbers of patients from place to place. Uh, and uh, also some of the temporary walls and barriers that are with our life safety codes. Uh, please note, we revised the ESRD flexibilities as well to include assisted living facilities. You know, prior to this time, we had done some of the waivers as it relates to long-term care facilities that, and um but now that uh, the dialysis care can be provided in assisted living facilities and similar types of facilities. Uh, and then the last thing I think um, I want to note uh, that will have some uh, relationship to your work is with we placed a waiver out related to swing beds. Uh, we've expanded the ability for hospitals to offer long-term care services um, and swing beds for patients who do not require acute care, uh, but do not meet, uh, but uh, do not meet the SNF uh, requirement level of care or meet that. And um, this allows hospitals to establish stiff swing beds to provide additional options when. Um, it's not possible to obtain a long-term care bed uh, within their uh, area that they usually work with. We know that the, there's been a few issues with that. So um, those are the flexibilities that we have uh, put out within the last week or so. Please check our website for additional information. But I want to turn to uh, our Evan Shulman, the Director of the Division of Nursing Homes within our center, who's going to provide some updates on the survey process and data reporting. Evan? Thank you, Jean, and happy Field Nursing Week to everyone out there. We really appreciate your efforts. I'm going to just give an overview of some of the um, updates uh, that, that we have for some of our programs here. Um, first, on surveys, I think everyone knows that with the memo that we released on March 23rd, we've altered the types of surveys that are being conducted. Since that time, we uh, states and federal surveyors have only been conducting surveys that are uh, triaged at the immediate jeopardy and also the infection control surveys that we have uh, released. To date, states have conducted over 6,800 surveys across all of our states. That's hitting approximately 44% of our more than 15,000 nursing homes. Of course, it's going to vary by state. We have some states that have conducted surveys in almost all their nursing homes, and we have some states that have not conducted uh, as many surveys as other states and, and are, are, are have conducted a very low percentage of, uh, of surveys. Of course, this can be due to multiple factors. It could be due to the availability of PPE or a state's need to use surveyors in other capacities uh, due to their clinical backgrounds. Um, but what we're seeing on these surveys is interesting, and we're seeing providers doing a lot of great work. So a big thank you to everyone out there uh, who's doing a fantastic work in preventing the spread of COVID-19 through using the guidance that we have put out uh, and, and in conjunction with the CDC. Uh, CMS and CDC have been putting out guidance since well before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Uh, we've been putting out tools and, and other resources for, for facilities to use. So thank you for using those and, of course, leveraging any other resources that you may have access to. Um, we are still seeing some cases where facilities are not 
uh, doing everything that we believe they should be doing to prevent the transmission of COVID. These are some of the things that we have had a longstanding uh, uh, requirements uh, and expectations about, things such as just hand hygiene and, and making sure that hands are, are disinfected when they should be, uh, using uh, PPE appropriately, and this is not about whether or not a facility has or does not have PPE and, and, and is not using it. These are cases where the surveyors are observing facility staff with the appropriate level of PPE. They're just not using it appropriately or donning and doffing it appropriately. We're also seeing some cases of noncompliance where the facility is not notifying the physician uh, timely related to a change in condition. And then one of the more uh, prominent things that we've needed to do over the, the, the course of this uh, pandemic is cohorting and isolation. And, and I know that this can be challenging because of the structure and the makeup of some facilities of, of how, how they are structured. Um, but we have seen occasions where, again, even though the facility has the ability to cohort or isolate residents uh, in the right way, they're still not doing it. Um, so I know that this is difficult work, uh, but, and, and again, a lot of you, or most of you are doing a great job at it. I think the message is don't let your guard down. Um, for those of you that think you've got it and you're doing it right, are you sh make sure that you, that you know that everyone is doing it right. Do you know exactly how every single one of your staff is donning and doffing PPE in some far unit of your facility? And if not, then you may want to check on that. So again, great work for everyone. We continue to see some, uh, some sporadic noncompliance related to our expectations, and we're hoping that we can shore those up as soon as possible. Um, the other thing, I, again, reminder about the, the guidance that we've released, please make yourselves as well-versed as possible in all the guidance that CMS and the CDC have released. This includes uh, the self-assessment that we recently updated on May 6th, and this update includes some information about a new requirement that I'm going to spend some time talking about, which is the reporting requirements. But the self-assessment is intended for you to be able to conduct your own survey and look exactly at the same things that the surveyors would be looking for. And the survey and self-assessment are based off of longstanding guidance and regulations, but also the latest information that we know about how to prevent the spread of COVID-19 in nursing facilities. Uh, so I also mentioned I'm going to highlight the new requirement that uh, effective May 8th, all facilities are required to do two types of reporting. Uh, one is reporting to residents, resident representatives, and family members, and another is reporting to the CDC. All of you know that we've had a longstanding requirement for facilities to know whom and when to report cases of communicable diseases to. In this case, it would be COVID-19 to your state or local health department. And this reporting just layers on top of that. So first, on the family reporting, uh, all facilities are required to report COVID-19 information uh, to uh, uh, residents, the re resident representatives, and their families. And what we're really just trying to get at here is answering the question uh, that, uh, that family members are asking is, what is happening in the environment that my loved one is in? And we believe strongly that they have a right to know. And that's really what that is aimed to do. The second requirement is reporting to the CDC through the National Healthcare Safety Network, or NHSN. And this is critical for our national surveillance of the trajectory of the disease in our country. We know that states have their own type of reporting, but there's no national standardized way to collect nursing home COVID-19 information across our country. And this is the first ever way to collect this type of information so we as a nursing home community can know how the disease is moving and where we are on the, the, uh, the hump, as, as they say, uh, of the, the curve of the, where this disease. So this will give us the ability to see where we are. It is critical that every single one of, of the nursing homes enroll and start reporting information as soon as possible. The requirement is to report at least once a week. You can report more than that, but it starts with enrolling. Thousands of nursing homes have already enrolled uh, to submit information through the NHSN system, and, but we still need thousands more to enroll. Thousands have also started to report, and we still need thousands more to report. CMS will be making this information public we will also be enforcing noncompliance with non-reporting. 
So again, I urge all of you to look at the CDC website. Uh, there's uh, very easy to follow instructions on there. If you have questions, they have a help desk that can help. Uh, but we, based on what we're seeing with thousands of facilities that have being able to enroll, it, uh, enrollment should not be a barrier. So with that, uh, thank you again for all of your hard work out there. We as a uh, nursing home community are all in this together. Um, and so we really appreciate your collaboration. And again, your hard work, uh, particularly during this week of the Skilled Nursing Week. Uh, Jean, I will turn it back to you. Thanks much, Evan. Appreciate uh, all the information. And um, now I want to move to observations from the field, uh, first from the uh, federal perspective, but then we're, we will quickly move as well into hearing from our guest speaker today. But um, Lauren Reinston, I'm going to turn it over to her, is the division director for uh, our Northeast Survey and Enforcement Division. And in her role, she um, provides supervision, direct supervision to the federal surveyors as well. She works really closely with the state surveyors and the state survey agencies. Um, and so I've asked her to uh, kind of give us an overview of some of the things that they've been finding um, in the field over the past several weeks. And then when um, she completes uh, her uh, statements, uh, she'll turn it to Dr. Namali Stone, who's been with us on a couple of occasions, um, the medical epidemiologist for long-term care uh, from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention to kind of talk about some uh, practices, promising practices that she's seen as well. So, Lauren, and um, then to Dr. Namali Stone. Okay, very good. Uh, hello, everybody. I'm Lauren Reinerton. Um, as uh, Jean mentioned, I represent uh, the Northeast Division of uh, Survey and Enforcement, and it actually represents 14 states, activities in 14 states, and includes Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. So in our area, uh, we have had COVID-19 hot zones, as I'm sure uh, all of you are aware. Uh, we also have had several high media cases from outbreaks uh, that um, have garnished a lot of its attention. And um, we also have, from our work uh, as federal surveyors and also uh, with the state agencies, we have uh, information from the CMS uh, focus infection control surveys. So we all know that we have a commitment, all of us here on the on the call, have a commitment to take care of the residents in this COVID-19 emergency. And, it, you know, it's one of our highest priorities, and we all know how foundational strong infection control practices are. Um, from our experience, we've seen nursing homes um, meeting infection control requirements and doing a uh, marvelous job under some very challenging experiences and conditions. Um, but I did want to share today uh, a few areas in which perhaps more attention or oversight might be applied to improve some outcomes. And as um, Evan Schulman had mentioned, and I'm sure that you all uh, also are cognizant of it. Um, there seem to be um, three uh, major areas that we, we see repeating opportunities uh, that are available to reduce in infection spread. And uh, one of the first uh, areas is hand hygiene. And it's you know we're all we're all only as good as our weakest links, and we really need to make sure that we pay attention. Um, we educate our staff and observe them and remind them and and make uh, hand hygiene um, you know a, a, a readily accessible type of a um, activity and um, you know having you know keeping an eye on them and i know everybody is working hard and trying to work fast and get the job done but we have seen um quite a bit of um problems with uh hand hygiene 
And the other the other area is actually donning and doffing of PPE. And you know, when you have the PPE, we've we've seen. Um, I'll go into a little more detail in a, in, a, in a minute. But um, you know, we've seen uh, people taking off uh, PPE incorrectly. Um, you know, not um, really uh, donning it properly. Um, you know, masks that are not on right with, um, you know, their nose exposed and various other things. So um, that's one of the areas, the donning and doffing of PPE, that we all can use uh, reminders on to make it easy. Uh, hopefully you'll have adequate supplies available, but educate your staff and make sure that um, they're doing uh, the donning and doffing appropriately. Um, there also is uh, the, the concept of that separation and cohorting and, and signage and making sure that there is an overall awareness of your staff for these infection control actions that we're all working so hard to make sure are available to the residents. So the big three are hand hygiene, the donning and doffing of PPE, and the signage and the cohorting and that separation and making sure that that is everybody is aware of it and following those um, those actions. So uh, specific opportunities that you may be doing this already, but I'm going to be mentioning some of the things that we have seen in various uh, surveys and experiences in the skilled nursing facilities. So in terms of surveillance. Oh, there's an opportunity to have more robust resident monitoring, uh, which goes beyond taking temperatures, but also taking other vital signs on a routine schedule. Um, we've, we've seen some facilities, they only document in monthly notes unless uh, the resident starts to complain or has a, a temperature. And there seems to be little documentation in, in the clinical records uh, often of um, stomach issues, headaches, um, other vital signs, and the uh, types of um, uh, signs and symptoms of COVID-19 that the CDC has issued expanded guidance on. Um, we also have seen cases where staff screening was not adequate, and we also have seen social distancing not present upon the main entrance into the facility. So in the area of infection control, um, we need to have uh, nursing homes consider having backups to key roles in infection control. Uh, we've seen uh, several cases where the infection control nurse might be absent uh, with uh, illness or COVID-19, um, and we have seen um, issues where the uh, infection control nurse was assigned to staff nurse duties instead, and then that role of infection control and that oversight is, is uh, held vacant. So we also have seen situations where first-line staff are not informed of a possible COVID infection, a lack of signage on the, uh, you know, in the, you know, the areas where COVID-19 um, residents uh, are. Um, we, we've seen the cohorting of COVID-negative residents or uninfected residents with the COVID positive or the PUIs or suspected COVID positive residents. And then um, we also have seen uh, staff who provide services in the COVID room uh, then go into a COVID negative room without washing hands or changing PPE, gloves and that. We've also seen that not only in the nursing staff but also in housekeeping and support services. So that's another area that is an opportunity that you can keep an eye on. Um, the hand hygiene I mentioned, the housekeeper we've seen going from one resident room to another without washing hands. Um, and, um, and, and we also have had during interviews uh, staff express that um, they don't understand that if they touch residents in a resident touch items mm -hmm. in a residence room that they also need to perform adequate hand hygiene. 
And um, we have seen circumstances where hand sanitizer is not readily available, that soap was not available. So these things uh, really can be uh, solved uh, with um, observation and vigilance and, and management. Uh, we've seen facilities that do provide N95 masks, but they have not fit tested their staff for the appropriate uh, use, use of the appropriate size. Um, we, we've seen um, one mask uh, issued for the entire day, and um, and that is uh, difficult when uh, the um, staff are, are working with COVID-19 with acute symptoms. Um, we, you know, as I mentioned before, we've had staff not wearing masks and not appropriately covering their mouth and their nose, not changing gloves appropriately. Uh, single-use gowns um, that were being reused but not uh, washed correctly, um, and then gowns with holes or tears, um, one gown a day, and the individual would be walking through the entire facility in and out of uh, COVID-19 positive and negative rooms, and then only issued a new gown if it gets soiled. Um, and, and then there are issues also that staff have not been instructed on how to handle PPE when they um, go on lunch breaks or to the restrooms. And uh, we did have a, a couple of facilities where um, there wasn't adequate cleaning of resident care equipment between COVID positive and COVID negative residents. And that equipment included thermometers, pulse ox machines, blood pressure cuffs, uh, Hoyer lifts and that. Um, and then we did have uh, an instance also where the staff didn't know how to, um, you know, use the uh, temporal thermometer according to the manufacturer's directions. And so the calibration was, was a concern. Um, the environment, we have seen, <clears throat> you know, the lack of wiping down surfaces frequently. Uh, trash sometimes was not removed and floors uh, were dirty. And then, um, you know, just, uh, you know, basically, uh, we um, have also seen uh, that education is extremely important, that um, the staff, uh, you know, at times uh, were uh, needing additional understanding of how uh, COVID-19 would be spread. And uh, we have had circumstances where they were really not aware that their own practice of not changing gloves or gowns appropriately could be spreading the disease to other residents. So these are some of the weaknesses that we saw, but we're sharing those with you so that you would be able to find opportunities within your own facilities in order to increase uh, the control of uh, infection spread. And then, um, you know, and finally, you know, on a more macro level, um, it is an opportunity for, you know, managements and the facilities to really reevaluate the risk assessments for your skilled nursing facility, to reevaluate your PAR levels, your staffing plans, your capacity, your capabilities. And, you know, with, with all these, uh, you know, opportunities that you might uh, be able to consider, uh, we, we really feel that um, paying attention to, um, you know, your your staff and the way infection is handled and monitoring that uh, creates a, a, a very good opportunity to um, really control and protect the residents that are in your care. So um, we, we really thank all of you for the jobs that you are doing. Uh, it's not easy uh, to do these uh, important um, tasks. But um, we do hope that uh, some of the items that I mentioned um, might be taken into consideration as you uh, continue your, your good work in infection control. So I, I'd like to now uh, turn it over to Dr. Amelie Stone of the CDC. And um, I thank you for the time uh, here today. Hi, thank you, Lauren. Uh, hi, everybody. This is Namali Stone, and I'm very grateful to my colleagues at CMS for the opportunity to 
spend a few minutes with you um, and really to hear your feedback and learn from you and all of them uh, so that we as a community uh, of um, partners can work together to make our um, residents and our staff in long-term care safe. I want to just uh, build up, say a couple of things about what Lauren just shared because it's so important, some of the uh, key actions that she raised. Um, I'm going to point out three. The first is um, her comment about N95 respirator use and fit testing. Something that people don't always know about N95 respirators is there's a whole um, medical evaluation that goes into uh, the fit testing and respiratory protection program. And that's because there are some of our uh, healthcare team members who may not be comfortable or safe using an N95, especially for prolonged periods of time. So I think that is a really critical piece of the um, safety of our personal protective equipment and one of the reasons why it's been raised uh, often about having a fit testing program and a, and a protection program. The second thing, just building on the whole uh, concept of respiratory, is to emphasize uh, her comment about the importance of doing regular vital signs, symptom screening, and documenting those findings so that you can go back and, and build the picture of how a resident's clinical course has been, and, and in particular, being able to trend some of those vital signs to see patterns that might be early warning signals that a resident may need to be um, moved to a higher level of care or uh, receive additional, you know, um, closer follow-up. And so in addition to the typical vital signs we're used to doing, I also uh, hope you're all adding pulse oximetry, which is a measure of the oxygen level in, in people's blood. This has become a very important piece of um, detection of the early uh, respiratory distress that can come with COVID-19 infection. And the third thing I want to say is to put a plug in to her comment about having a backup person to support infection control in your buildings. And I'm going to go one step further because I can, as a public health advocate, say I would um, really consider making your infection preventionist a full-time role right now during your COVID response activities. If you think about the incredible amount of work that somebody has to do, there's surveillance, there's screening of the staff and the residents, there's reviewing those screening, you know, to make sure that they detect early any new cases, reinforcing um, the infection prevention practices that Lauren pointed out um, through uh, observation on the units and doing coaching and just-in-time training for frontline staff and environmental and housekeeping staff because we know a lot of this equipment is new, unfamiliar. We know there's a lot of stress going on in the building, just the heightened vigilance, everybody's on edge, and some of your centers are short-staffed, so there's really a hardship in terms of people getting fatigued after working long hours or double shifts. So having somebody who's dedicated to the safety in your buildings is a really important part of, of this um, response. So thank you, Lauren, for those points and, and the opportunity to, to sort of build a little bit on what you said. The other thing I want to build on is some of the comments from Administra Administrator Verma about celebrating the successes of our provider community across the country. We are immensely grateful for the work that you're all doing and your frontline staff and your residents and families and everything you're doing to support them. And I want to share with you that uh, CDC is starting to compile a list of success stories, um, different tiny anecdotes that illustrate how um, centers have been able to implement some of the key COVID prevention strategies that we um, have been promoting throughout the response. Things like keeping COVID out from uh, entering the facility through staff screening and, and, um, and reinforcing things like social distancing among staff even when they are on breaks and um, or hanging out after hours to just remind people that uh, we want to be mindful of 
of not uh, sharing germs uh, with our colleagues, um, the identification of infections early, um, and the rapid implementation of those infection prevention precautions to stop the spread, um, as well as managing and optimizing our supplies and, um, and helping do the monitoring to prevent severe illness. Those five key strategies are sort of the scaffolding, if you will, the, that we're going to use to build some of our success stories. And I'm just going to share one uh, that um, illustrates an example of early detection and early action. There was a center that, that um, shared with us that they learned to trust their gut and really advocate for testing when, um, when it's your initial exposure, your first case, and there may be some skepticism about whether you should be considering COVID. This center um, noticed that one of their residents had um, a constellation of symptoms that seemed very concerning and consistent with uh, COVID infection, even though they had not had any known cases. And, um, and so they hadn't already kind of had a lot of COVID circulating in the community. Um, because of their high suspicion, they placed that resident in precautions quickly and started advocating to get testing, which at the time that they experienced this was not very accessible. Back in, in early and mid-March, we know a lot of people, a lot of facilities couldn't get their hands on testing. So they had to go through their public health program and really push the, the request uh, multiple times to convince the public health program that this, yeah, it was legitimate COVID and we should test for it. And in the interim, they minimized the number of caregivers that was uh, interacting with that resident. They were using all the PPE that they had on hand. But um, again, as a lot of us um, realized early in the response, most of our facilities did not have all of the full PPE. For example, this center did not have eye protection, either goggles or face shields. Um, so they were using masks gowns and gloves, but, um, and they were being as cautious as possible for the staff that were working with the resident, but um, there was still risk. And um, after they finally got COVID testing for that resident and confirmed that this was a diagnosis of COVID-19, they then um, identified the staff that were the most exposed, had them go on a uh, furlough or voluntary sick leave for um, the, you know, the recommended uh, 14 days um, following their exposure, their last time caring for that resident. And they immediately reached out and contacted all of the residents, families, and other team members, other staff in the building to make everybody aware, either a phone call or through a personal communication. And um, bottom line, uh, because of their early um, identification, they're trusting their gut on what this uh, resident might have and really treating uh, that case um, appropriately. Um, they did not have any other residents or team members uh, diagnosed with COVID or, or uh, become infected. So a lot of... Um, good lessons buried in that story. And we are looking forward to hearing your stories as well as we build up our website and the platform for sharing. Uh, we will be letting you know how we can um, hear more from you and share your experiences and lessons. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Stone. That is a perfect lead in into our last speaker of the day. Uh, Larry Slatke is the executive Director of Shaker Place Rehabilitation and Nursing Center in Albany, New York. So I'll just turn it right to you, Larry. Okay, thank you very much. And I am joined by our Director of Nursing, uh, Rebecca Luce, and our Assistant Director of Nursing, uh, William Redmond, uh, who's a specialist in infection control. And thank you for having us. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, best practices, but first I want to talk which I think is very important, and it goes to some of what the speakers have been saying about go cohorting and the structure of one's nursing home, which I think is very important. We're going through, and I'll quickly go over this, a renovation uh, where we're adding on to our existing nursing home units, and three are done and three are not done. So 
three units are in our high rise, approximately 120 beds, and three units are downstairs, 120 beds. However, the downstairs units, which have been renovated, and it goes to social distancing, and I can't really uh, emphasize how important that is. Downstairs with 120 residents, we've had uh, three residents test positive since January. Upstairs, uh, where we have the same 120 residents on the same three units, we've had over 50 residents test positive. So it shows uh, that the social distancing, which we're capable of doing downstairs, versus the traditional nursing home with basically one 40-bed corridor, is virtually impossible. And then we've also learned how difficult cohorting is, because we do cohort, but you have residents with BIM scores of a 2 who are wandering around and will not stay in their room or have the door shut and they open the door and they're walking around the units. So it becomes extremely difficult to take care of 40 residents or 35 residents on a 40-bed unit and at the same time, okay, try to keep everyone in line uh, with infection control who's a resident living here. We're in a restraint-free environment. So it becomes very, very cumbersome for the staff to deal with. So we've developed some protocols to follow, but it was and still is difficult to cohort um, on a traditional nursing home unit. And the last thing which I'll, which, I'll, which I'll state before I turn it over to Rebecca is that we started everything way early on, meaning we didn't wait for any guidelines we didn't wait for any uh, releases from CMS or CDC because I believed, and I think most nursing homes, have all of these uh, procedures for infections, whether it be a flu, in place already. And we started early on with um, screening of all new employees coming into our nursing home, taking temperatures, monitoring sick calls, looking at people's symptoms, um, and starting, even when we started to do testing, we started uh, testing, yes, but if someone had the symptoms, we immediately started treatment. We didn't wait for the result. The assumption was that they're going to test positive. So we used what we had, and then we, when we got the guidelines, that assisted us in furthering what we had in developing what needed to be in place to better supervise uh, the COVID-19 uh, virus and make sure our residents are properly self-protected. Uh, um, so I'm going to turn it over to Rebecca now and go over some more specifics. Hi, I'm Rebecca, the Director of Nursing. Um, I want to say that early on the New York State Department of Health came in and they tested a team here and educated us on obtaining the test ourselves. Um, we initiated a respiratory assessment um, to include symptoms and uh, monitoring of the resident's temperature every shift. If a resident had any symptoms or a temperature of 99 or above, um, we added pulse ox uh, oximetry to them and we tested them. Um, we monitor COVID, our COVID residents' oxygen saturation every four hours and we start oxygen therapy early and we also do IV and therapy early. Um, We've tested all of our, at this point, we've tested all of the residents in our building, and we're happy to say that we have 19 that are in the recovered phase of the COVID virus. So I think that um, what was best for us is that we were able to test, and we test very quickly. We get our results very quickly. We have access to the, to the results. It usually takes less than 24 hours, um, and then we, we start treating their symptoms. We're going to go to that staff. Uh, we're also we're also testing our staff. Um, we do our we started our screening before the guidance was given. Um, we we monitor their symptoms, we monitor their temperatures. If they have any symptoms, we have our medical director here and Bill Redman, our infectious infectious preventionist, and we send the staff home and then they come back and they're tested um, during our testing. So we stop them at the door. We don't let them come in, and we also test them and, and get access to their results very quickly. And, and a th another thing which I think is important, and, and I think this was also mentioned, we have, which, and I don't believe that every nursing home uh, has the type of uh, staff members uh, that are part of our um, administrative and nursing team, which really truly helped us um, 
get ready and just jump into this. Uh, not only do we have a director of nursing, assistant director of nursing, assistant director of nursing is an infection control specialist. Even though we don't have a ventilator unit, we have a full-time respiratory therapist on our staff, and we have a full-time MD medical director, all of which work in concert with our uh, three RNs who are in the education department and quality assurance. So that team was able to immediately, um, you know, create the type of protocols that needed to be followed uh, by our staff and, and then education, education, education. Follow through, follow through uh, constantly, and even as we speak today, four or five months in, uh, we still do this almost every single day. Thank you. Thank you. That is really truly amazing all the things that you did and especially as you said you didn't need guidance uh, to know to do those things so we truly appreciate that um operator operator i think we have time for maybe one call and uh so if you could get that queued up um and uh one question and uh while we are doing that again let me thank everybody we extended this to an hour because we knew we had so much rich information and we have certainly i think used that hour well so let's see are there any is there one question from the field yes we have one question from the line of terry Harmon. your line is now open thank you um my question actually is relative to the blanket waivers and the state waivers and when they actually, some clarity around when they expire. Um, I think that um, uh, Azar, I know, did an extension of the, um, you know, the uh, emergency situation, but there's really no clarity, and I've looked everywhere to see when they actually expire. So that would have to be declared um, or, as, as was mentioned, extended. Uh, we don't have information on that at this point, uh, but we will, uh, rest assured, keep you posted on that. Yeah, that would be great. And if we could um, get something in writing, that would be even better. Okay. Thank you for that question. Thank All you right. so much. Well, Okay, well, um, Elena, let me turn it back to you to close us out. Great. Thanks, Jean. And thanks, everyone, for joining our call today. We hope that you'll join us for our CMS COVID-19 office hours tomorrow, Thursday, May 14th at 5 p.m. Eastern for technical Q&A with our CMS subject matter experts. Please continue to direct your questions to our email box, which is covid-19 at cms.hhs.gov. Again, we appreciate all that you are doing for nursing home residents and their families around the country as we address COVID-19 as a nation. This concludes today's call. Thank you. This concludes today's conference call. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect.